0: Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you know about our Patreon page. Patreon helps creators like me continue to create and do the things we love. If you love listening to these episodes and want us to produce more, we'd appreciate your support over at Patreon forward slash Ezra Magazine. The following episode contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. For support, please contact your local crisis centre. In Australia, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. On September 1, 1934, a bull grazier by the name of Thomas Griffiths was walking his bull back to his father's farm located just outside the town of Albury in New South Wales. A small farming community at the time, Albury is located on the border of Victoria and New South Wales in Australia, with the Murray River running near it in its effort to reach the sea in the neighbouring central state of South Australia. A former frontier town, the Albury Township was once proposed to be the nation's capital. However, after fierce opposition from residents was ultimately rejected in favour of Canberra. Satellite towns such as Howlong and Kawara in the west were small farming communities and nothing but dirt roads connected to the towns. With the fence to his right and the Howlong-Kawara road on his left, At the corner of his eye, he noticed something out of place underneath a culvert, a type of pipe drain that's built under a road. He hitched his bull to the fence and took several steps toward what he realized was the legs of a human body. Frightened, he left the bull, ran to his father's farm and called the police. Griffiths would become the person who found the now infamous Pajama Girl. When police arrived to the scene, roughly 4.5 miles west of Albury, the body of a partly-burned woman was found inside the pipe. Dressed in silk pyjamas, with a sack over her head to her shoulders, the woman's body was badly burned. Upon examination, it was discovered that her forehead was battered and the legs and lower part of the torso were charred to a black mass. A towel was found, wrapped around her head, partly burned and tattered. There were eight wounds above the left temple and a bullet wound below the right eye. Becoming more commonplace in the 30s, doctors performing the autopsy used x-rays to also discover a bullet lodged in the side of the woman's neck. She was believed to be aged between 25 and 30 years old. She was described as having bobbed, peroxided hair, blue-greyish eyes, and approximately 5'1 in stature and of slight build. Results of the autopsy suggest the woman fought hard against her assailant or assailants. Quote, she is badly bruised and battered. The theory has been advanced that the girl was killed while asleep, but this seems doubtful in view of the nature of her injuries. In an attempt to get rid of evidence, kerosene was used as the accelerant, and then her body set alight. Noticed by Griffiths, oily patches on top of water pools were discovered at the scene. Dressed in silk pyjamas, Doubt still remains over her identity and for a decade was known only as Pajama Girl. The story of the Pajama Girl made continuous headlines throughout Australia and across the world. Images of the deceased woman were sent to police in the United Kingdom, New Zealand and the United States as she was unidentified. No one claimed to know who she was and women reported missing around the areas of Albury and the northern parts of Victoria were either found soon after they reported or had moved states and made contact with family. New South Wales police sent a nationwide call-out asking the public to identify the murdered woman. Using the description of her hair, face, and height, calls began filtering into the police station. One man in Melbourne, Victoria, called the police concerning two women he had served at his Cobra garage prior to the body being found. Mr. A.J. Rice said that one of the women was, quote, similar in appearance to the Albury victim, by a her peroxide hair, bobbed hair, plucked eyebrows, and liqueured fingernails. Quote, the elder woman asked me the distance to Albury and the state of the road, saying, We will probably have to camp on the way. Before leaving, the men continued, she tendered a one-pound note for petrol. I cannot remember the name of the car, but it bore a South Australian registration plate. In the same article published on Tuesday the 4th of September, just three days after the body had been found, police had theorised that the murder was committed in a house somewhere nearby the previous Tuesday night, and within a few hours, the killer had attempted to destroy the body. The police cite the killer as being, quote, clumsy and panic-stricken, and that he knew little of the area in which he sought to secrete the body. Police also believed that the corpse was carried approximately 50 to 70 miles at the most, and therefore were pursuing inquiries at farms along various stretches of roads leading into Albury. Newspapers continued to publish the Pajama Girl's story almost daily, On September 6, there were reports from a number of witnesses that they had seen or had passed a car along the Howlong Carrara Road. However, the reports and witness interviews failed to provide any solid evidence for the police. By the 11th of September, the New South Wales Police offered £250, which is approximately $5,000 in today's money, in exchange for information that would lead to the arrest of person or persons responsible for the death. As neither her identity nor killer were known, investigators relied on their various networks to distribute images of the woman as well as her dental records. In what is believed to be the first time in the history of crime investigation, the Dental Board of South Australia agreed to send the deceased woman's dental chart to approximately two hundred and fifty dentists across the state in an effort to identify the woman. Another clue investigators had to aid them was a partly burned towel that was wrapped around the head of the victim. There were three indistinct letters inked in the towel that were stained with blood. It was a large white towel with a double red stripe at each end with hemmed edges and no frill. The letters R.C.O. or M.C.O. appeared on the end. Lines of inquiry and analysis also shed light on the source of the now infamous pyjamas. They were of a quote, exclusive design and an expensive material in an unusual crepe imported from the East, most likely from China. In the several days after the woman's body had been found, media released detail after detail in an attempt for someone to come forward to the police. By the 13th of September, after 10 hours of work, her body was embalmed to preserve it more or less indefinitely. In a first for Australian police, a plaster cast of the victim's face was also taken in an effort for the public to identify her. She was eventually transferred to Sydney University and placed in a zinc-lined coffin and in a bath of formaldehyde in an effort of identification by the public. Ultimately though, no leads, evidence or progress was made to identify the woman or her killer. In the January of 1938, a relieving magistrate in Aldbury, Mr. C.W. Swiney, opened a coronial inquest into the woman's murder. Present at the inquest was the man who had found the woman, Thomas Griffith. Quote, I had driven by the culvert about a week previously, and that was the last time I remember being in the vicinity. I did not see the face of the dead woman, but was shown a photograph, and she was no person that I knew," Griffith concluded. Also present at the inquest was a doctor by the name of Leslie Woods. Dr. Woods, upon examining the body, found the bullet lodged in the victim's neck. He also stated that he believes the injuries to the head were caused, in his opinion, by a heavy and possibly a blunt instrument, such as a tire lever. Detective Sergeant McCrae, one of the investigators responsible for the case, said that even though extensive inquiries had been made by police, quote, We are unable to place any information before this inquiry about the exact time or place she met her death. McRae goes on to say that it is his opinion that the body had been placed in the bag before rigor mortis had set in and Judging from the position in which the body was found He was convinced that the dead woman had been carried some distance in a motor vehicle before the body was placed in the culvert it is also my belief he continued that she was placed there by someone without a knowledge of the district. Although an attempt was made to burn the body, he continued, there appears to have been very little effort made to conceal it, as the culvert is on an open, much-used road surrounded by flat country. The inquest also revealed more information about the potato-type sack, her pyjamas, as well as the towel that was found wrapped around her head. Detective McRae said that infrared technology revealed the letters D.A.L.M. and the burnt portion of the sack contain the letters O.R.E. This, he believed, is referring to the Dalmore district in Gippsland, which is in Victoria, and was not an uncommon sack at the time. Her pyjamas were green and cream in colour, but infrared technology didn't reveal anything of note. The towel of Japanese origin was most likely imported to Sydney and Melbourne in 1933. The Laundry Owners Association of both Victoria and New South Wales were contacted, but the initials RCO or RMO had no association. By March of 1938, The inquest and police investigations all but dropped out of the news cycle, bar a few new clue hopes to reveal identity headlines here and there. However, none of the leads, true or false, helped police. On the 7th of January 1941, some six years after her body had been found, rumours surfaced that the woman's body was to be buried by New South Wales police. She was still laying in a bath of formaldehyde at Sydney University. According to the registrar of Sydney University at the time, Mr. Sell, a request was made by police to remove the body from the university's medical school. We have been put to a great amount of inconvenience," said Mr. Sell. There is a steady flow of letters from people who, from morbid curiosity only and with no genuine claim, asked to be allowed to view the body. In a strange development the following week, it was revealed in a letter to police commissioner McKay that a woman who lived at Cootamundra, which is about 237 kilometres north of Albury, had written to, quote, claim the body, stating she believed it was her missing daughter. The woman claimed that her daughter had gone missing a few days prior to the body being found on September 1st, 1934. Furthermore, she demanded that the Sydney University return the body to her, However, New South Wales police were convinced the woman was mistaken and that, in their opinion, the body was not that of her daughter's. The name of her daughter was Anna Philomena Morgan, who was 23 at the time of her disappearance. With renewed public interest in the case that had baffled police for over six years, The Daily Telegraph, a newspaper in New South Wales, revealed that it unearthed a, quote, secret police file. On the 19th of January in 1941, it was revealed that Philomena's grandmother, a woman by the name of Mrs. Jones, reported that her granddaughter was missing back on December 1st in 1934, just a few months after the body had been found. The following day, Mrs. J. Rutledge, Philomena's mother, provided a description to the police. Quote, aged about 20 years, four foot in height, eyes blue and very large. Complexion, skin clear and fair hair used to be brown, if not dyed. Two front teeth missing since a child, a scar and stitches on the left-hand side just about the hip. However, by 1936, Mrs. Rutledge's story and description of her daughter had changed. Interviewed at her home in Albury by police, her description now read as follows. Five feet, six inches in height, well-built, large breasts, two teeth missing from upper jaw, front teeth filled, and a birthmark in the shape of a dancing girl on the left-hand side of her stomach. Mrs. Rutledge also viewed the corpse in 1937 and signed a statement with the police which is as follows. Quote, that body is to no way identical with my daughter, Philomena. The teeth are altogether different. That is the first thing I looked for. My daughter's hair was very dark brown and in no way identical with that of the unknown woman. The bust of the Albury victim is considerably smaller than that of my daughter, and my daughter is larger in stature in every way. My daughter also has a distinct scar high up above the stomach on the right-hand side of her body. In a public response to the her letter, the police department stated that they would not hand over the body of the deceased woman still floating in a bath of formaldehyde. The police official also stated that Anna Philomena Morgan's name was, quote, not a new one. It was one of many suggested to investigators long ago, he added, and the possibilities were thoroughly explored and ultimately discounted, he continued. There has been nothing in more recent developments to alter our opinion and the corpse will not be handed over for burial. Due to the public statement by police, solicitors on behalf of Mrs. Rutledge, Anna Philomena Morgan's mum, issued a writ, which is a type of legal demand, via the Supreme Court to demand the victim's body, citing that Mrs. Rutledge had evidence proving the remains were Anna Philomena's. However, with the war raging in Europe and most preoccupied with Australia's war efforts, the case once again dropped out of the news cycles, reappearing a few months later, when on the 11th of June 1941, the Main Roads Boards of New South Wales decided to demolish the culvert to realign the Main Road. Located approximately 7 kilometres or 4.5 miles from Albury, the culvert on the side of the Howlong Road became a sensation, Dozens of people flocked to the area, stopping by to see the place where the Pajama Girl was found. The decision to demolish the culvert was due to a necessary realignment of the main road between Albury and Halbong. However, when workers of the main roads department began to dismantle the culvert, a man arrived and placed a crucifix thereon suggesting that the crucifix would be a, quote, fitting memorial of the murder. The workmen didn't pay much attention to the incident at the time, but later thought that the strange conduct by the man was worth a phone call to the police. However, by the time the police arrived, the man had disappeared. 10 days later, the body of the murdered and unidentified woman was removed from Sydney University The police refused to disclose where the body was sent or the reason for the secrecy. Members of the public were worried that she was going to be buried, hindering the investigation and possible identification. According to the Daily Telegraph, only four police knew where the body was hidden. The Commissioner, Mr. McKay, the Superintendent of Detectives, Mr. Matthews, and two detectives that moved the body, the Chief Secretary, Mr. Batterley, was not informed of the body's whereabouts. All of them were sworn to secrecy and why, none of them would say. However, it is believed at the time that the body had been moved to a cellar of a government building. A police officer, commenting on the removal, said the body could, quote, be produced in less than 20 minutes and it would not have to be dug up. Nearing towards summer in early November of 1941, it was revealed in New South Wales Legislative Assembly that a doctor by the name of T. A. Palmer Benbow had written to the Minister of Justice on May 28 of that year, claiming he had, quote, "...exact knowledge of certain essential facts in connection with the case which included her identity." Dr. Benbow claimed that the body belonged to that of Anna Philomena Morgan and that he could positively identify her. However, once again through a public statement issued the following day on the 8th of November, police denied that the body is hers. Police, in the statement, believed that Anna was traced to Queensland where she is, quote, alive and well. Commenting on the announcement in the Legislative Assembly was Mrs. Rutledge's solicitors, who said the writ demanding the body be handed to Mrs. Rutledge was still filed with the Supreme Court, but no further steps had been taken to take the matter to court. The statement issued by Dr. Benbow, made public by the Legislative Assembly, became sensationalized by newspapers around the country. Several headlines claimed that the Pajama Girl was now positively identified and that the mystery had been solved once and for all. In an exclusive interview with the Daily Telegraph, Dr. Benbow said he made a statutory declaration to police declaring that the body really did belong to that of 23-year-old missing woman Anna Philomena Morgan. However, he told the Telegraph that police had dismissed his theories over the murder and not looked into his evidence pertaining to the victim's identity. Quote, I was in England when the murder was committed and did not interest myself until I saw details in an illustrated Sydney periodical dated October 29, 1938. He continued, I started the investigation purely as a scientific study, and have continued it at my own expense from a sense of public duty. It has already cost me much time and money and brought a good deal of unwelcome publicity. My only concern now is the need for an impartial, non-departmental inquiry into the evidence I have gathered. So far, this has been refused. He continues... I did not start to collect evidence on the identity of the Pajama Girl until after the police had rejected my theory of how and where the murder was committed. After extensive inquiry, I located Mrs. Rutledge of Bombardiery, mother, by a previous marriage of Anna, born August 10th, 1911. Mrs. Rutledge asserts that Anna Morgan, missing from home since 1930, is the Pajama Girl and all my inquiries since confirm her claim. Dr. Benbow examined the body of the deceased woman in the presence of Dr. Oliver Latham and quote, did this of my own free will. Dr. Benbow goes on to state that a mass of scientific evidence supported his claims measurements of photographs of Anna Morgan and the pyjama girl, both from the same angle and on the same scale, revealed 19 anatomical correspondences which established the photographs were of, quote, the same girl. A professor by the name of A.N. Burkett, who worked at Sydney University, also examined the body of the woman and formed the opinion that it was of a girl, quote, round about 26, born more probably in England or on the continent of Europe than in Australia. Anna Morgan's mother, Mrs Rutledge, was from South Africa and of Afrikaner Dutch heritage and her father was an Australian man. Furthermore, a cast of the Pajama Girl's teeth shows dental defects which can be seen in photographs of Anna Morgan. Accurate measurements of photographs shows the defects to be in identical places in each case. Quote, since satisfying myself that the pajama girl is Anna Morgan, I have traced the girl's movements just before September 1st of 1934, and there is evidence that she was in or about Aubrey at that time. He continues, in view of these facts and many other details which I have had to leave out in this short summary, can anyone doubt the need for an impartial inquiry into my claims? Mrs. Rutledge, also interviewed by the Daily Telegraph, said that she, quote, "...is certain that the pajama girl was my daughter, Anna Philomena Morgan." After so many years of anxiety, I welcome the prospect of a proper public inquiry at last. The case of the pyjama girl left New South Wales police completely baffled. After her body had been embalmed and preserved and then transferred to Sydney University for display, there were no new leads. Police chased leads in Melbourne, Adelaide, Queensland and even New Zealand. Every effort, according to police, yielded no evidence and put them no closer to finding her identity or the identity of the killer. How the woman ended up on the side of the road, stuffed into a pipe, and then set alight within the few days prior to the discovery of her body on September 1st, left detectives with no leads. By 1941, with the affidavit signed by Dr. Benbow that the body belonged to that of 23-year-old Anna Philomena Morgan, public scrutiny of the police work heightened. With the further revelation of a secret police file and that her body was moved to a secret location, calls for an impartial inquiry by Dr. Benbow, Mrs. Rutledge into the matter of the woman's death and the police investigation fell on deaf ears. In response to Dr. Benbow's exclusive interview, New South Wales police publicly refuted his claims. Additionally, Queensland police also refuted his claims, citing they traced Mrs. Rutledge's daughter to Queensland and that a woman by the name of Jean Morris, who was brutally stabbed to death in Eyre on October 4, 1932, was in fact Anna Philomena Morgan. Jean Morris's mutilated body was found clad only in a nightdress on the bed of her house at Ayr a week after she had arrived from Cairns. However, they provided no evidence to the media to support their claims. The Chief Secretary of Police, Mr. Baddeley, then refuted the need for a public inquiry into the Pajama Girl's case on November 26, 1941. The back and forth statements between police and Dr. Benbow played out in the media in the days and weeks following the public release of his statement in the Legislative Assembly and his interview with the Daily Telegraph. By January 11, 1942, Dr. Benbow escalated his claims that the body belonged to that of Anna Philomena Morgan and alleged that the police department have known her identity since shortly after the crime in an article titled, Pajama Girl, Anna Morgan, published by the Daily Telegraph, Dr. Benbow claimed that police file number 11687 and 11687.7 and file 13274-7 contained evidence of identification by the girl's mother, grandmother, grandfather, Mr. James McDickin, and Mr. Benjamin Griffiths. Additionally, five Sydney doctors and a dentist testified in a signed statement that Dr. Benbow's scientific evidence warranted a complete investigation. Dr. Benbow also alleged that the police had altered a photograph of Anna Morgan to show that she was not the pyjama girl, and that the police had, quote, at no time examined the scientific evidence upon which he bases his claims of identity. With the war continuing to rage and no new developments or inquiries, almost a year had passed before the Pajama Girl story surfaced once again in early December by none other than Dr. Thomas Alexander Benbow. Appearing on behalf of Mrs. Rutledge, Anna's mum, in Probate Court, a division of a state Supreme Court which is concerned with the administration of deceased estates, Dr. Benbow signed affidavit alleged that a woman named Lucy Collins revealed to him that she had seen a man strike a woman in a shack located in the Albury Common. Collins claimed a man by the name of Guyna Quinn picked up a bit of broken bed, battered her and knocked a woman to the ground in 1934. Inside the affidavit, Dr. Benbow states that he traveled to Albury Common in December of 1934 and interviewed Lucy Collins, where she told him that, quote, A pretty fair-haired girl, a stranger, came to Quinn's shack where she lived. She asked me if I could put her up for a few days. She seemed to be tired and hungry. I got her something to eat and she stayed for three days and nights. I didn't know her name, but I called her Sweet Nell. She then continues in her statement to Dr. Benbow. Ginger Quinn came over here one night and was talking to her. I understood they were old friends or lovers, so I went outside and left them sitting on the bed. When I came back, I found they were fighting and Quinn was throttling her. In his affidavit, Dr. Benbow said that he asked Lucy Collins if the woman had put up a good fight. Too right she did. I tried to help her and got knocked on the floor. Quinn then picked up a bit of broken bed and knocked her on the head, battered her and knocked her to the floor. Quinn then ran over to the hill to his home farm. I tried to do what I could for the poor girl. She was bleeding terribly and was unconscious and muttering to herself. Quinn's parents then came along, washed her face, and carried it out. "'I saw a terrible hole, and then in the girl's forehead,' said Collins, according to Dr. Benbow. "'It was her eye. It was smashed to bits. She was not dead. "'They came back inside again, grabbed me, and slapped me across my face and pulled my hair. "'They told me to keep my mouth shut. I was terrified.' Lucy Collins then told the doctor that it was though a calf had been killed, there was so much blood. She had burnt the mattress and threw the thing he bashed her head with under a tank. Upon investigation of the scene, Bembo found a piece of iron bedstead covered with green paint. It was six inches long and weighed about 17 ounces. Ben said the shape and nature of the injuries to the head of the pyjama girl coincided very accurately with the instrument. It had also shown blood reactions when submitted to a scientific test. Under a microscope, he had found hair from the head flattened and split, as would be done by a heavy blow. A minute fragment of green paint had then forced into the fibre of the hair. In December 1941, he showed a photograph which had been identified by Mrs. Rutledge as that of her daughter to Lucy Collins, who said bitterly, that was the girl who came to my shack. In Lucy Collins's trunk, he found a white silk belt which Mrs. Rutledge identified as one she had given to her daughter, On a rubbish heap 300 yards away from Quinn's shack, he found a crystal earring, a piece of fabric, and a small brown suitcase. Then, he also found a small comb, and was identified by Mrs. Rutledge as belonging to her daughter. Producing the measurements of the photographs, and by exact observation of anatomical structures, he states, Beyond any doubt, Anna Philomena Morgan is dead, and is the Albury murder victim. However, the probate judge, Mr. Justice Nicholas, said he was not satisfied that identification had been established and added that he would forward all the papers concerning the case to the Crown Solicitor for him to decide what further steps might be taken in the criminal jurisdiction. Following the dismissal of Mrs Rutledge's claims to the probate court, a strange turn of events occurred by which the Goldburn Evening Post, a local newspaper, publicly challenged the New South Wales Department of Justice to reopen the case of the Pajama Girl. Appearing on page one, the Goldburn Evening Post writes, It is curious how the sordid business of the pyjama girl has taken on an atmosphere of mystery. We have followed the case with less interest than most because we have always been convinced that there is no mystery at all. The writer for the post continues. Many other people have been murdered in pyjamas, but this mystery captured the world because of the phrase, we say, there was nothing strange associated with the murder because it has been common talk among the police, the kind of talk which never gets into a witness box, that it was no mystery at all. At least three of four persons identified the body as that of Anna Philomena Morgan. Signed statements to this effect have never seen the light of day. Not for any particular reason other than the full significance of the contents of the documents was not realised or because of the extents of other certain statements, which could easily have been contrived but appeared to contradict those signed statements. One detective has all the information in his possession and it would have been interesting if he was called as a witness during the recent case in Sydney. They go on. The Evening Post suggests the inquest be reopened and that this detective is called as a witness. In fact, the Evening Post is prepared to name three witnesses to the authorities who can clear up this mystery. Two of these can give positive evidence of identification. Is the Department of Justice prepared to accept this journal's offer? The newspaper's threat, it was revealed on January 06, 1943. Detectives in Sydney opened an inquiry into the pajama girl, eight years after her death. Detective Inspector Morgan and Detective Sergeant Ramis made their way to Albury to re establish an investigation into the woman's murder back in late August of 1934. By April that year, the detective submitted a report to the Attorney General claiming that Anna Philomena Morgan was not the pajama girl. They also state no young girl had been battered in a hut in 1934, as alleged by Lucy Collins in a statement to Dr. Benbow. In a statement to the media, Attorney General Captain Martin had directed no further action was called for in the case of Anna Philomena Morgan. The following day, it was then revealed that the Pajama Girl's body had been buried in a secret location, but was still accessible to the police. The Pajama Girl's case was now once again lost to the archives of unsold murders. In an all too familiar statement by the police, they alleged that inquiries would continue. Public pressure towards the growing list of unsold crimes in New South Wales continued to grow due to quote, failure to get results. However, in a mother's persistent will to bring home her daughter, on the 24th of June, now in 1943, Mrs. Rutledge applied to the full court of New South Wales for a new coroner's inquiry. Following several unsuccessful attempts to retrieve the body of which she believed to be her daughter, Whether by some mistake of the police or for some other reason it was stated to the coroner by a detective that the body had been identified by several people as that of Anna Philomena Morgan, but that she was still alive. Evidence put before the coroner that Miss Morgan was still alive was false. Mrs. Rutledge, he said, had missed her daughter some time before that and had contacted the police and taken them to a photographic studio where a copy of a photo of her daughter was obtained. Police had later taken a copy of this and returned it to Mrs. Rutledge. When they received the photograph, it showed the girl with a full set of teeth, but when it was returned to Mrs. Rutledge, it showed her with one tooth missing. We think the facts in this case are so startling, that is, in a matter in which the state full court should act. Refusing to open the inquiry into the Albury Pajama Girl, the state full court today, quote, ordered that the papers be forwarded to the Crown Solicitor, quote, A considerable body of evidence has been submitted to this court, which points to the girl being, in fact, the daughter of Mrs. Jeanette Rutledge of Bombardery, said the Chief Justice, Sir Frederick Jordan. Other evidence suggests it is probably the killing that took place near where the body was found, and that the police theory advanced at the inquest that the body had been transported a considerable distance by car is, in fact, incorrect. Later, it was revealed that the Detective Inspector Morgan, who worked on the Pajama Girl case and prepared the report for the Attorney General, would be transferred to the Karaga district and therefore off the Pajama Girl case. However, by the 2nd of July, the full court once again refused Mrs. Rutledge's request and headlines in the newspapers ran with Pajama Girl closed. In response, Mr. Frith, who was a part of the Legislative Assembly in New South Wales, once again requested that the state government reopen the case. But due to the Attorney General stating that there was no further action required, newspapers at the time speculated that a reopening of the case was more or less out of the question. The decision not to reopen the case at the request of Mrs. Rutledge made headlines again for several days after. Newspapers across the country speculated why the police and the court had decided not to reopen the case. One Aubrey paper wrote, quote, Here the question arises, what would the police, in their search for the criminal, gain by any or all of the acts alleged against them? Murder is a capital offense, and it would be an evil thing for the community if it were ever established that the police concerned of the apprehension of the culprit had waned anywhere in their investigations. Allegations are not necessarily unfounded always, and on occasions are made by people with the best of intentions. Sometimes they become facts, but as required by law, they must be examined carefully and without prejudice. As the full court of New South Wales disagreed to reopen the case, the Pajama Girl's identity and killer's identity would rest once again with a coroner, whose last inquiry was in 1938. As Mrs Rutledge's counsel suggested, it was still incomplete and inconclusive. Despite calls to reopen the case by the newspapers, members of the public, Mrs. Rutledge and her solicitors, Dr. Benbow and a Mr. Frith, the case faded away within the headlines. Until, on an idle Monday on early March 1944, a breaking story would appear across the front pages of nearly every East Coast newspaper. The Pajama Girl's killer had been arrested. Appearing on page one of the Telegraph, squished amongst news of Nazi Germany being defeated in Ukraine, news of the Pajama Girl's killer and identity were finally made public. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by the host of Ezra Magazine. We'll be back next week with part 2 of this episode. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com forward slash Ezra Magazine.